0: My name is Angela Jager and this is Marcelie Kehoe and we are from the Historians of Netherlandish Art. Welcome to this h and podcast series. We are starting a series of short conversations about new research projects or research in progress, publications, exhibitions and or research findings.
1: We are looking for members who would like to discuss their work with a colleague. Please contact us and include a short description of the subject you would like to talk about and perhaps who you would like to discuss this with please contact us at administrator at hnanews.org.
0: Welcome to the first episode of HNA's podcast series. My name is Angela Jaeger, and I am here with my co-host.
1: Hi, this is Marcelie Kehoe.
0: Our subject today is Women and the Arts in the Dutch Republic, and we are honored to introduce as our guests two experts in this field, Frima Fox. Uh, Richter from the Pratt Institute in New York, and Judith Norman from the University of Amsterdam. Frima, uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, your research has always concentrated on issues of gender and art in the 17th century, and you have published widely on early modern female artists, especially on the painter uh, Judith Leister. And recently, your new book came out, Women, Aging and Art, a cross-cultural anthology. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book project?
2: Oh, yes. I'm actually very excited about it because it came out yesterday. That is February 11th. It's uh, co- edited with Majori Yoshimoto, um, largely because it's uh, cross-cultural. So there are a number of... Um, old master, old mistress, European um, artists and um, projects dealt with, but also art from Japan, Africa, Polynesia, the first peoples of North America. And uh, it started out as a CAA talk with the Committee on Women in the Arts. And five, including me, five of the contributors to the volume are HNA members. So, uh, Zerka uh Jane Crom, Paul Crenshaw, and Diane Wolfthall. Uh, they're not all writing about northern uh, or Dutch 17th century, but it, they do cover some Italian and German and English art as well. It's um, dedicated to all the young women who may be anxious about wrinkles and to, to all the old women who know better. So <laughs> <That's> great,
0: <Yes. laughs> uh, Judith, thank you so much for being here. So uh, last year seems to have been a good year for you professionally. So at the University of Amsterdam, you taught a seminar about women and the arts for bachelor students, which resulted in the book Gouden Vrouwen, or in English, Golden Women. This book edited by you includes short articles written by your bachelor students to help them prepare for academic life. With this innovative approach, you won the university's annual teaching award and to top it all off, you were awarded with a prestigious Dutch grant for your project proposal on the impact of women on the art market in the Dutch Republic. So first of all, congratulations, and I'm sure we will hear a lot more about its content today. Um, When do you plan to start your research
1: and what are the first steps? Hi, Angela. It's it's great to be here today. Um, uh, we will be starting September 1st uh, of this year. The first steps was really to sort of gather all the knowledge that we have and has been published on women, not just as artists, but also as art dealers, as collectors. And that's the step that I did with my students. And that resulted in that book, How to Vow um and now the first steps will be to build an actual team because this is a multi-year project with an actual team so there will be job openings for a postdoc and a PhD candidate um and I am uh, I'm, I'm putting together the organization as a, as a whole
2: uh, so, Judith, I'm fascinated by the fact that you just wrote a book with your students or your students wrote a book with you. Can you tell us uh, more about it? It is really unique. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, I'm
1: happy to. Um, it started, um, well, about a year and a half ago. I, I taught one class and classes at the Uva, they, they last two months. And at one point I just figured, why not try and write a book with them? It actually came from a complete misunderstanding. I was supposed to teach at a different university at some (laughs) point. And and they gave me a a list of participants and they had 33 students in the class. And I almost choked (laughs) on my tea at the moment because how am I going to teach a seminar, a research seminar, (laughs) 33 students? So I figured, well, why not turn that into something good? With a lot of people, we can do something big. So why not write a book? So I completely designed this class and the day of the first uh, meeting, I sit there and there are only three rather than 33 students. So I didn't write (laughs) a book with them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But the idea kind of stuck because the kind of things that you and I write, it's actually not that far removed from the many, many papers that our students do. And I wanted them to really experience the difference and show them, this is what it takes to go that extra mile to actually have it published. Um, And uh, it was a great experience for them, but for me as well.
2: I think it's also exciting for them and still for me To find new things, to realize art history isn't done, that uh, you can go to archives or even just looking at older literature and take something out of it, like the footnotes that everyone has overlooked and, and find just new ways of looking. The whole idea of working on women is taking the same facts, or sometimes new ones, and just asking different questions. And, exactly. um, you know, so I would, would tell them, come up with 10 questions every time you see a painting um, and think, oh, well, uh, what can I ask? But you, I said, you don't have to answer them, but ask the question so that exactly. you just have you keep your mind working. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that your students were able to work in archives. Yes, Uh
1: not really. These are bachelor students. So um, they, they actually came from the entire faculty of humanity. So some of them were studying political science. Some of them were doing archeology. span So really their task was mainly to gather everything that had been written about these women. So I prepared a short list. And, um, and then to, to really explain to a wider audience how these women impacted the production and consumption of art. So sometimes it was as uh, an art collector. There's, of course, one student who wrote about Petronella de la Cour. And we know her from her dollhouse. That's the part of her collecting that's always mentioned. Uh, But her actual collection, which was auctioned in the early 18th century, which mentions her as the primary collector uh, decades beyond the death of her husband, with whom she collected earlier on. Um, So that student, Stefania Brancetti, she wrote not just about the dollhouse, but also about the collection. Um, And there was stuff for her to do because there isn't that much writing on it. But yeah, it's so it's not like she went into the archives, um, but but she tweaked it. She showed a new perspective, the the woman's perspective. And in doing that, yes, she did contribute something new. And the book as a whole is also new because it combines not just women artists, but also dealers and collectors and uh, women who did compile um, dollhouses and things like that. And it's empowering for them.
2: I think we're first understanding the importance of looking at dollhouses now to realize that it's not first, that it's not just child's play, but that it does, you know, or can imitate the real house of a person and see... What's on the walls, and where are the maids, and where are they? You know, where are they ironing, and where are candlesticks and uh, dishes? And uh, so it's really, it's really exciting from a practical that is a histor- As a historian, it's exciting because you mm-hmm. can see the the houses, the rooms that they lived in, sort of at work. Um, exactly. Well, I think most people go into the museum and you get on those ladders <laughs> to go look into the shawl houses. Um, I, I imagine that they're just experiencing it as a doll's house and not necessarily uh, trying to find out, you know, what they have on the walls or, you know, paintings on the walls, things like that. So mm-hmm. I mean, it is fascinating.
1: Like you, I know that in your own research, you are now looking at inventories and not just at art in the inventories as it's usually being studied. So separate from the rest of the household inventory. Uh, And I'm doing the same. This was sort of something we have in common now that we're looking at inventory archival research um, and looking at the household as one unit and the place that art has that is integrated in it. I think that was really striking.
2: Yeah, I had, uh, well, with help, of course, but I did um, the first to translate the, Uh, Molinar uh, postmortem inventory into English, which made it a whole lot easier to then work through. Um, There are some, at least 150 paintings that are listed in different parts of the house, but there is, there are over 20 chairs and there's (laughs) curtains and all kinds of things. When I was first writing on it, I noticed this and made lists of the different colors that they had, yellows and blues, um, just very, you know, sort of colorful um, appointments in the house, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I was very sensitive at that time, uh, this was a very long time ago, um, to do something that I would be even more uh, labeled as women's work that is mm. being involved with, you know, chair cushions and which are listed, you know, they, they list blue chair cushions and uh, yellow curtains and things like that. Um, but I always kept those in mind. And so I was able to mm. talk about the paintings in it and the musical instruments, but I really did keep away from the, the curtains and the pillows. Uh, and now uh, I've been looking at it, you can count like how many beds there are, how many pillows are being used, where are they? So it is uh, now I feel much um, more emboldened uh, than I was when I was young, both when I was younger, but also just a long time ago, that there's um, more of an interest, um, an intellectual and historical interest in women's lives. And um, and that's largely also because of you and your work um, that really spread it out. So it's not just about women artists, but how did they live? And for me, I'm just taking one woman and trying to figure out how she lived um, and also, since she lived in different cities and with an artist and had children and was part of a larger family, there's just a lot there. Um, so it's always been exciting for me to work on her.
1: Um, yeah. um, so I wanted at one point come back to this idea of the household, but um, for now, I wanted to ask you more about Judith Leister since we're on the topic. So what do you think about the self-portrait, the oval one by Judith Leister that was on the art market for a little while and is now in a in a, in a private collection?
2: Oh, well, I think um, you and others have also suggested that maybe it's uh, a forgery or that, you know, artists can be making forgeries of Judith Leister, which I think is uh, an exciting possibility. Not with that one though. Um, uh, I really, uh, I do think uh, it is by her. And when we say older, it's really interesting that she never achieved what we consider old age. She died at 50. Mm-hmm. So, um, which is, you know, I think about that. I have to say I'm older than 50. And when I approached 50, I thought about, oh, this is when Judith Leister died. So that all the years after, I feel even more as a gift that I had that she didn't mm-hmm. have. I know that may sound uh, strange, but um, but I mean, I, I think when you work on an artist, you do get a personal uh, connection with them. Um, I think the, the difference between those two portraits, the one at the National Gallery in Washington, I think that one was made on the occasion of her becoming a master, and there are certain Um, there were prescribed uh, measurements for that painting largely she painted uh, you know small paintings so Mm -hmm. it's not it's just a different shape but it's not that unusual for her interesting just as a connection to this Paul Crenshaw in his uh, in his chapter in my old women book identifies a painting by Franz Hals as the as the subject is Judith Leister. Mm. Um, because also in the inventory uh, there are two paintings of mm. Molinar and his wife by Franz Hals, and so he suggests that now I can say this without uh, being concerned because it's it is published as of yesterday. Right. <laughs> so, but um, he did he did uh, talk about this in a CA um, a CA conference. There's a painting at the Frick of a painter, a male painter, she thinks it's Molinar, and a painting at the Met that is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that is usually in storage uh, by Franz Halls and thinks it's Judith Leister older. And uh, he Mm. did various time lapse kinds of things to see that she's possibly, you know, it's possibly her. And I I think all of these new ideas are just are fascinating. And they do in some way relate to the inventory that there really is, Mm. you know, there is somewhere around there were these two paintings. So um, it would be, you know, really exciting to see. Um, See, If
1: I were a forger, I'd be going through that inventory just like you. And be like, what can I come up with? What can I find? Because museums worldwide are scrambling to find what do we have that's made by women artists? What depicts women in a certain way? Like, How do we make women more visible? Whether you want to paint a turkey.
2: (laughs) A turkey, uh, there are grapes. There's a lot of still life in the inventory that's listed as by her. But yes, I could see that it could be, uh, financially valuable to go through <laughs> women artists' inventories and start painting. Yeah. Um, but then, right, so yes,
1: I have one more question on. Uh, on Le- well, I have a thousand more questions on Lester, but I have one more that I wanted to ask you. Do you think that Judith Leicester belongs in the Rijksmuseum's gallery of honor? Because I know that they're reshuffling a bit, and I know there's some discussion about it. Um, what do you think about that? Where do you stand?
2: Well, I think there should be more about women's lives in that gallery of honor. Um, Whether it's uh, porcelain um, and more about home life, more to give a sense of what that time was. Mm. The specific painting that the Reichs Museum has, which is the Serenade, which is a very you know very nice painting, they do have it hanging, and even when it was closed and they only had masterworks it was included Um, but if I were going to choose a painting it wouldn't be that one of hers to put in the gallery of honor so I'm just being as frank as possible and honest as possible here it's not that every painting she did belongs there I don't I don't think that Mm. and I don't think it you know one could legitimately say doesn't measure up to not just Rembrandt or Vermeer, but some of the other paintings that are there. However, there are others like the flute player in Stockholm, or even the self portrait that I think are important, beautiful, also the proposition at the Moritz house that are significant and also beautifully painted. So uh, if the, if the Museum wants to borrow one of those and put it in the gallery of honor. Um, so I I don't think that, you know, you have to have every woman artist in there. That's, you know, Man. but it is, a uh, when you walk in, it is this man's world. And there's Absolutely. no getting around that. And it does look like you don't belong there. I mean, not just me personally but that this is you're looking out from the outside in that you can never get in this world and Mm. I do think if you had even maybe one of the dollhouses in the gallery of honor what an amazing idea you know to just to have something that actually is a phenomenal a piece of furniture Mm. anyway but something about um I don't know some of the great porcelain those huge tulip vases um I think would be, which they do have, I mean, Rice Museum does have this in other parts of the museum, but I think it would change the nature of the gallery of honor. Hmm.
1: I completely agree. And I quite like your suggestions also because they're not paintings. So in order to really um, make women more visible in history and in museums, you need to broaden our, what we have come to define as art, as important objects to illustrate. Uh, history and women's role uh, within it. Um, I often uh, uh, joke to my students that should a 17th century person walk into the gallery of honor, they'd look around and they'd be like, yeah, mm -hmm, okay, this is, this is nice. But what have you done to my really expensive things? Like, where's my furniture? Where are, where's the jewelry? Where's the porcelain? Where's the clothing? Because when you look at those inventories, um, you know, they are just a mere fraction of what people were spending on the whole. And I think we've lost sight of that along the way. And by studying women, I've come to realize that.
2: Yeah, no, it's a very good point. Um, I often point out the, um, uh, the tablecloths in still lives, the damask and also the, the carpets, I mean, those were a fortune. And, uh, and actually I just came across in uh, Judith Leister's inventory, there's a yellow silk tablecloth. And I thought, oh, that must have been expensive and even that it's noted that it's silk. So, um, you know, well, you can have some physical items next to paintings, it could really not just be the a pipe that a man is smoking, but you know, something more of a domestic life. And mm. I think that would be very, very exciting um, for any visitor, because it, you don't need to just be a woman to see that, I think, you know, um, a man can see that as well and understand that the idea is sort of filling in uh, what's been left out. Um, and I think the Museum has been doing that with, um, uh, their notion of Black history or the impact of, I think, the mm-hmm. slavery exhibition may have opened just today. Uh, so, really filling in history that has been known but really not explored. And, I, and women's history is really part of that.
1: Yeah. yeah the Rites Museum is actually one of my uh, uh, collaborating partners on the, on the VD project. So for, the, for that project that I'll be starting in September, I'll be looking at women uh, and their impact on the art market, uh, and not just as women artists, but also as consumers. And I'm studying that with the team by looking at the household as a whole, specifically household consumption. Uh, and one uh, recent archival discovery made by Robert John van der Mal. Uh, has already proved that this is uh, an interesting sort of way to to get women into focus because he found a, a household ledger that belonged to a woman who lived in the second quarter of the 17th century, not mentioning her name. I was supposed to announce it with Robert John at H&A uh, uh, in June, but that will uh, uh, have to happen a year later. Uh, but she uh, wrote down everything that she spent and... There are a hundred art purchases there. Uh, she did them herself. She lived alone. There is no man involved. But she writes vividly about her entire household, about the women who worked for her, how she hired them, the kind of agreements they came to, the kind of clothing she had, but then took the sleeves on and then made them into or had them made into a jacket for uh, these women who worked for her. So it's just it's just that whole life, that whole domestic space comes to life in such ridiculous detail. It really is, and I mean this is a completely new document. I really do sometimes wonder what else is out there.
2: Yeah. So it's a lost woman who's come to life with you and uh, with your with your colleague, uh, but you, you do need that the documents to be able to 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 see it because there's no other way if you go into a museum you don't you don't you don't see that and um and I think that's what the museums can make possible i wonder if you can if there could be some way to uh sort of re uh reestablish her household um or something like we, that
1: we certainly want to do a, a historical reconstruction um i mean this is 200 pages so so we know not just you know what she owned, but also when she had things repainted, uh, how she used certain rooms, when certain objects entered the household, when she discarded things. So yes, a a virtual interior would be absolutely fantastic. Um, And um, I think your HNA uh, and mentoree, is that a word? Is Wei-Chuan Li? (laughs) And, And I'm talking to her. It's well oh, right. about yes. it. Yeah. With the yes, it was just a, yeah.
2: it was just a coincidence um, that I was connected with her. I had volunteered to be a mentor. And um that one is uh working on inventories and the names the chapter she sent me was on the names of rooms uh how oh, uh, art historians or historians have um, also often gotten um the name wrong that in a different a different house a different building it might be called a different a different name. And uh, so I've since then been looking at the Leicester inventory thinking, oh, is that really that room or, or you know, so yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, quite uh, fascinating. I, I think Chuan is also happy that at least I knew about inventories. <laughs> so it's like, oh, uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't that foreign, but unfortunately the- there is no inventory of this particular
1: uh, woman's house, but we do know that she purchased. Yeah, a hundred pieces of art. Uh, And we know about the actual acquisition, right? Which is so different from an inventory because that that just means that somebody owns something, but who purchased it and under what conditions is completely unclear. And with her, we know to whom she went, what the price was, what the price for materials was, what the subject was, even the amount she would have spent on having the work itself uh, delivered to her home would be mentioned. Well, so that's just an insane amount of detail. We also know that behind her secret so her, 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 her uh, toilet, um, that there is uh, the ice skate of one of her servants and it just fell in or behind it. So she <laughs> has to replace it. So how do we even know that about any household? Like right. if I were to move my couch, I'm sure I'd be surprised by some things, <laughs> but I know it of her home
2: insane. Yes. It's funny about the, the intimate ways we get to know people who've been dead several hundred years.
1: She would <laughs> not have liked it. I don't think now. <laughs> so
2: this, is, because it's not an in inventory, then it's not in the Montius database. And it is then this entirely new document that everyone now will be able to get through. Will it be online, do you know, or uh, yeah, I mean, so after it, you all use it?
1: Um, Exactly. So, so we are working now with a team of volunteers uh, to make a transcription of the entire document. And we're also making it or turning it into a database so that we can uh, run calculations on how much you spend on the church or how much you spend on food or in servants or in art. Um, uh, And and all of that will be available as soon as possible because there there are so many reasons to study a document or a woman like this, like this is an unheard voice because she was wealthy, but also because she was Catholic actually, Uh, also because she was this art purchaser, an important one locally at least. Um, So I think it needs to be open access and widely available as soon as possible. Yeah. aiming for next year that
2: would be great because i and many other people will be eagerly (laughs) going through that oh it's interesting that you mentioned that she's catholic um and how do you think that impacted on her uh collecting or the art did she say not have not have or had religious art i mean had uh you know crucifixions and things like that or or what
1: Certainly, she, she owned uh, mostly biblical subjects, oh. um, but we also know what she liked about them. So we know that she had some of them restored because they, the gold leaf wasn't shimmering enough anymore or because she didn't like a certain part. Uh, at one point she had her own portrait painted into, I believe a crucifixion onto the face of Mary Magdalene. Oh my goodness. That, yeah, we have we. I know there's like a world there, um, and uh, she has her her coat of arms painted onto uh, these different objects. So yes, it was incredibly for her. It's almost like uh, it's it's almost works of art in action. Like this, this has a real visceral religious meaning to her. Like she's wow. handling these pictures. She's she's constantly. Uh, tinkering with them, you know, and just just having them reframed or replaced or moving them about or having them clean. She at one point gets this blue paper to to clean pictures with. We go like, no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, uh, it's it's very much almost a, a living, breathing thing for her. The art in her home. It's it's very interesting, completely new wow. um, perspective.
2: Yes. I mean, even if she didn't have that much of a, a document, 200 page document, having a woman's perspective who lived during that time is really exciting. When Judith Leister appears before a notary with a ledger, it doesn't say like what's in it, but she has mm. a ledger. You think, Oh, my goodness. Like, what is she doing? You know, what, what does this mean? And so it becomes well, she comes to life. So I think that's what's uh, exciting, um, yeah. and and I think I think we're both trying to make these um, women come to life again. So it's uh, it, it's been exciting for me and um, and a surprise that after all these years, people are interested, and less so at the beginning of my work, uh, and at times it sort of went you know in waves up and down, but now it's up and um and I'm glad that, that I've lived to see it, so yeah. <laughs> um I am planning to still uh work on her uh one more time, but not in terms of attribution or any of the work that i've you know done before, but much more in line with the kind of work that you're doing uh, that is in terms of uh the studio uh her work with her husband, what her household was like. You know, more about the inner life uh, within the 17th century, in this case of a woman artist who is still working to some degree, at least after her marriage, or is taking care of the books, if not the just the paintings. So I think, I mean, I think I was always interested in that, but as I uh, said earlier, just um, uncomfortable um, reaching out that way. It was hardly acceptable to even work on a woman artist. So I, I didn't want to get into too much of her life, although I was brave enough a few years ago to work on the whole idea of uh, nursing mothers uh, as women artists or whether they had wet nurses. Um, and I think that sort of, broke through that mm. now I can really deal with the, the intimate life of these women, so, so. And is
1: that also, um, and I, I know that article and it's so important also because it goes beyond the traditional boundaries of art history. And I think for me, that was a turning point. As soon as I started to work almost more like a historian, although never losing sight of <laughs> the artworks, something clicked and I understood that there's so much we don't really know that we can mentally visualize about the 17th century. I needed to take a hard look at, at daily life and how did this actually work? How right. did the studio work? What, what, met, what does it mean that you did less or took on a different role? Not mm-hmm. a, a less important role, but a more difficult role to research. So I'm very yeah. glad that you're doing this.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's exciting for me. And it it isn't even that I have to go right now to the archives, I actually have a lot of the material, but it is, um, it's now going to be used in a different way and looked at in a different way. And uh, so if you see an article about, you know, pillows (laughs) and curtains, (laughs) it could be by me so but it, it it is you know fascinating to look into someone's life that way I often you know explain to my students that that's what the early modern period means that it's it's still connected with us but it is earlier but there are these connections there are still connections we can make and I do think um I think it's difficult for students because it you know they look so different, they're dressed differently, but it has been the more the more you do the research, the more you reveal that they aren't the same they're the same people with the same yeah. kinds of problems or difficulties you know running a household or getting married or having a career or what about the the finances of their original family and their brothers and sisters and so it's um You know it's very much like like everyone's family so yeah it's been it's been uh very rewarding uh to work on her I've I've enjoyed it and I I've always I've thought that um that Judith and I have worked together I've helped her and she's helped me (laughs) oh well it's true I like that yeah
1: Thank you for having us. Uh, We've definitely enjoyed it and we hope you do too. And it was a
2: chance for us to meet each other because um, we wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have sent a note saying, do you want to Zoom? (laughs) So so (laughs) this is is very nice.
0: We hope with this podcast, we can facilitate more conversation between scholars that work on the same or similar subject.
1: You can find this podcast series at hnanews.org slash podcast with references to literature and artworks mentioned in this episode. You can also subscribe to the Historians of Netherlandish Art podcast on your favorite podcast app. Our next episode will feature Walter Mellian and Celeste Brusati. If you're interested in joining an HNA podcast conversation, you can reach us at administrator at hnanews.org.